0: Listening to the Creative Spirits Podcast. I'm your host, Cheryl Benji. Thank you again for joining me today. Today, my guest is Dr. Marlene Figueroa Gray. She's a medical anthropologist with a passion for eliciting illness narratives and healthcare experiences from patients, family members, and medical professionals. She has researched how the intersection of creative practices and medical care provide insight into understanding the logic of biomedical care, what counts as evidence as a creative activity works, and how art activities can serve as a model of how to provide better, more patient, and family-centered care. She is particularly interested in how we attend to patients suffering and in what types of care are possible when no medical treatments are available. So please stay tuned for this amazing and beautiful, inspiring podcast with Dr. Marlene Figueroa-Grey. You are listening to the Creative Spirits Podcast. I'm your host, Cheryl Benji. I'm an artist, art educator, and creative coach. I'm here to share with you my journey as an artist. I also interview other artists to share their journey and their words of wisdom. I believe we are all born to create. It just takes a little bit of practice, patience, and persistence to get to where you want to be. So please stay tuned. Hi, Marlene. Thank you for being. (laughs) Thank you for being on my podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. Of course. Uh, So, tell us a bit more about yourself.
1: Sure. So, I am a medical anthropologist, which means I study and care about how people think about their health and their bodies. Um, and what they do when those bodies get sick or fall ill and how they care for themselves either through religion or through self-care at home, or when they choose to seek medical care in a hospital or a clinic or a more formal institution. Um, and then I pay attention to, to how some bodies are differentially able to access good health care and how power um, circulates and impacts the health, who is able to be healthy and who is able to get the care they need and who isn't and with what consequences.
0: Oh, that's so cool. I've actually never heard of that. (laughs) Medical anthropologist. That's
1: really cool. Do you know, I've been, so I, I finished my PhD about seven years ago. And I would say 10 years ago, I hadn't heard of it either. So um, (laughs) it's not commonly known as a, as a way to be in the world, but I absolutely love it.
0: Yeah. Well, there's just so many new, like, um, like careers Mm -hmm. coming up, you know, like I'm sure my kids are going to go into something that I've never heard about, maybe. Just, it's just all always changing and evolving. I love that. You recently wrote a book titled Creating Care, Art in Medicine and U.S. Hospitals. What inspired that?
1: Oh, that is, that's that's, such a great question. And it's an interesting pathway. And whenever I have to ask myself where it came from, um, the answer often goes way back. But I think it came... Um, from just, uh, being present in my grandmother's death, she died when I was 25 and Mm. I was living in the States at the time. And my mother and my grandmother were living in Germany and we had all grown up in Germany together. My grandmother is German. My mother's half German, half American. I'm a quarter German, a quarter American, half Puerto Rican. And, um... And we've all grown up kind of in the same region of Germany. And so I was apart from them getting my master's degree. And I just got this call from my mom, like I knew she was sick. And I got this call from my mom one day that was, um, her voice just sounded different. And it Mm. it was around that time in US airfare travel where you could buy, like I got the phone call in the morning and that afternoon I was on a plane home from DC to Germany. And it was, oh. it was like a six hour plane ride. And I remember stopping at the tr- you know, getting off the plane, getting the train from Frankfurt to Wiesbaden, where we were living, and then buying flowers at the train station and thinking like these are probably the last flowers I'm gonna bring her. And in addition to being, you know, heartbroken about that, I also had this determination to be like, well, we're gonna do everything, you know, that we need to do. Um to kind of enact care. I don't, I wasn't using that language then, but that's how I would describe it now. Like how, to, how do we show up and care for someone? What's all the good work that's still to be done when someone is approaching death? Mm-hmm. And as we were trying to kind of make sense of where we were in the dying process, like, or actually we didn't even, I think, fully know we were in a dying process. I think it was more like to make sense of where we were in the mm-hmm. illness process. Um, this, we call a doctor he comes to our house. My grandmother had uh, grown up you know, during World War II. She, she had a, an experience she's never really spoken about where she was, um, I'm not, I wouldn't say interred, but she was kind of put in a concentration camp as a warning. Some German citizens who, um, she had broken a, a contract to work in an ammunition factory well, more of a conscription. I think a lot of German citizens were conscripted to, to work for the war when it was um, when it became a total war effort. And she broke the contract to go um, visit her fiance who was uh, about to be sent to the front lines, which is a pretty much a death sentence. He had been part of the yeah. resistance movement. But anyway, so in that experience in the war, something happened with her and a doctor that she hasn't she, she'd never shared that story, but in her life, Since then, she had never gone to a doctor. She had never gone to a hospital. Um, She did break her hip a few years ago and and had to, and that was kind of traumatic for her. But aside from that, she hadn't gone. And so, as she was approaching death, I was like, oh my goodness, are we gonna have to, you know, have her stay in a hospital or, or what are our options? And this doctor came to our house with his little black bag and kind of said to her in German, like, do you know the road you're on? And she said, yes. And um, I remember my mother and I looking at each other like, what road, like, what does this mean? Does she know, uh. like, what are, like, can, are we gonna use, you know, kind of medical language? Or are we gonna speak in metaphor? Um, but then he just told her like, which is, I will accompany you. And I also remember that moment being like, everything kind of clicked for me, like, Oh, that's a model that we can follow. Accompaniment, that's what we will do. We will accompany mm. to the end, right? And so um, we did, like, we stayed. I mean, we were, you know, dying is hard work for the person who's doing it and for the family that is supporting them. And yeah. so we did like 12 hour shifts and we stayed by her side. And um, there's a few uh, details about that that I kind of write about in the preface. But ultimately, I felt like. I knew what to do and I knew kind of how to show up for her. And then when she died, I remember feeling like we did it. We had a different kind of death. And by different, I mean, non-medicalized because her mm-hmm. husband, my grandfather had a, like every treatment, every invasive um, procedure that the doctor recommended that ended up kind of lengthening the pain rather mm-hmm. than promoting um, a safe passing, right? And so we were able to have a different kind of death than the one we had kind of been traumatized by as a family about eight years earlier. But then afterwards, I remember talking to my mom and she was like, oh, I wish I had had her paint something for us because mm. my grandmother loved to paint or I wish she had done this kind of, um, I don't know, leave a recipe or write a letter or tell me about this story in her childhood. And I remember thinking like, oh, is there, is there more that we can do as we prepare for death that helps people who are staying behind think about how to remember us? And all of these questions, I was like, how do I answer these questions? And I was at the time doing um, work in international education and uh, um, higher education, and I was thinking I was going to work for the United Nations. I had been a Peace Corps volunteer. I was committed to kind of... Um, anti-colonial educational, um, I wouldn't say reform, but support for countries who are who are building their education systems after a colonial past and trying to write their own curriculum on their own terms. And Mm -hmm. so I was like, I can't really answer these questions in the program I'm in. And I was looking for other other ways to to understand the world. And I happened to take an It was so serendipitous, like it wasn't conscious I just happened to take an anthropology class um actually (laughs) um I was at a I was at a I was at a faculty student meeting and I was I remember um drinking wine with some of the professors in the department that I didn't really know outside of class and one of them said well where are you off to next are you going to get your PhD like what's in store for you and I told her like my interest in Um, how people make sense of the world. And is there something we could do with education to understand like what their values are and how to support them living a life with those values and even maybe support them at the end of life. And she was like, you just sound like an anthropologist. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember being like, what's that? And so I took one class at the end of my master's program and I was like, this is for me. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I applied to a PhD program at the University of Washington was accepted there. And then even then I was looking at all of these questions through the lens of development and education. And um, I remember taking or taking a class where we read a book by a medical anthropologist and being like, oh, here is the window to answering these questions in the context of And then I felt like medical anthropology gave me the frameworks to ask Mm. and, and listen for answers in a way that could be a profession, right? Like I could spend my life doing this. Um, and then, and then within that, I remember thinking, could I really attend to the end of life? Could this be my question? And so one of the things I was interested in is how people, um, face the future with a limited, when the future is limited. And I had seen some of my students in Mozambique um, kind of hope for different things in their lives that they might've felt like would never happen, like attending college or getting a job outside of the country or traveling. And also feeling the limits of what was possible given what was available to them. And so I was interested in how to pay attention to what people hope for when the future is limited. But I think really, I was trying to figure out how do we face kind of the ultimate limit, right? Like how do we face the end of life? And so quickly, as I explored that, I noticed, um, I I shouldn't say quickly, it took about a year or two of looking into how people make sense of trauma, how how, how trauma gets processed in the brain. I learned that it gets stored um, in the areas that process sensation before it gets turned into language and i realized all the things i was being trained to do were around asking people things and having people use language to tell me um, what they were thinking and what their story was and i started to pay attention to how other people worked with trauma really how how you work with trauma when you can't use language which ended up being the arts, right, like dance and music Mm. and visual art and poetry and um, knitting and clowning. There are all these ways that um, you can use different parts of being in the world and experiencing your body to understand or or to live with the trauma of either violence that's happened to you or the trauma of a diagnosis, which itself, you know, can be Earth realigning, or um, something that calls for you to just be in the world in a whole new way, or sometimes the violence of medical procedures that feel totally invasive and mm. difficult. And then I wanted to pay attention to who those people were, what they were doing, <laughs> what they were doing in hospitals, and not just like um, you know a class that maybe their doctors would tell them about that happened off site or. Um, You know, only on Wednesdays. I wanted to know why did hospitals think they needed these people on staff? Why were they? So I only looked for artists that um, were paid by the hospital that had a permanent position
0: Mm.
1: in a medical unit or on a medical team. And then I started to think. Then I started to ask, really, kind of, what did they think they were doing in a hospital? Because often artists aren't trained to work in hospitals from the beginning. I think now with the professionalization of the field of medical art therapy and creative arts and you know arts and health um that might be more common but some of the people i were speaking with did not know they would end up in a hospital right they were mm-hmm. artists first and i was really interested in why were they artists in hospitals like what did they think they were doing there and what were they hoping for and then i talked to the doctors who supported these programs or hospital administrators and i wanted to know what did they think they needed artists for what did they think those artists were doing And then I spoke with patients and um, providers who uh, took part in these classes and other hospital staff. And I asked, what did they think they were doing in these classes? What were they getting out of it? What were they hoping for when they started it? Um, And then that's, the book is the story of, I call them logics, but like those logics of art-making practices. What is it that people think they're doing when they do art in, Mm -hmm. um, in hospitals?
0: I love that. And was this your first book and how long did it take you? Were there any setbacks?
1: Um, yeah, it's definitely my first book. Uh, I I was able, there's a, an organization in Seattle called Art with Heart and they put out um, creative books for children, like books that help children deal with pain in their lives. And I was incredibly lucky to be invited to be on the board of, um, one of their books called draw it out, which is about um, helping kids kind of deal with death in their family. Um, so actually, if I think about it, that would have been the first book I was part of, but it was a, a big team of people. And I wasn't um, an author, I was just one of the people that gave feedback on the book. So I love thinking about that as being my first introduction into the world of book publishing. But this book is the first book I've written. Um, it's kind of, it's quite common in my field to publish a book out of your dissertation. It's actually an expectation and a requirement if you go up for tenure at a university. Where I work now, it isn't a requirement. And I think some of my colleagues, um, I don't know, don't quite know quite know what to make of it as an academic product. Um, and so, I, I, um, so when we write our dissertations and finishing our doctoral programs, you're writing it as a way to, um, to show your skills as a researcher. Like I know how to design a study. I know how to carry it out. I know how to protect the human subjects that are joining me in this research endeavor. I know how to analyze data and synthesize and write it up. So it's, kind, it's, um, it's very much an academic product, but I was so fortunate that I had an advisor that said, write this thing you have to do as a rite of passage, write it as the book you would want to read. So mm. I had permission kind of from the beginning to not follow this very like standard. Here's the literature review. Here's my methods section. Here's the results, the results, the results, the conclusion, right? Like that's how it would flow. But I got to write a story of, of, of this curiosity about why are art and medicine coexisting in hospitals. And I got to hold up, um, Moments of surprise and moments of revelation and and moments of um, just interest in this book. And so I wrote it, I defended it, I graduated, and I had another baby right away. So I already had a two year old, and then I had um, a little tiny second baby. And and I that's started amazing. <laughs> I have I three my, kids, so <laughs> I only I, have I get two. It. <laughs> um I have two and and the book, I guess. My husband jokes that's that it's another my, baby. Yeah, that's what he says. Um but so after I so after I had the second baby, I also was um, you know, starting work full time in a in a very different environment. I work at a health research institute, and so I was learning kind of how to be in that space and I Thought you know if I'm not in academia in, in a university and if I'm not going up for tenure maybe maybe this will stay a manuscript and it won't become a or maybe it'll stay a dissertation and it won't become a book but I had an editor who found my research this happens often and I think this is how it ha- well it can happen several ways how you get a dissertation published but one of the ways is um, that publishers kind of check conference proceedings to see what is um, what people are presenting on and then they'll they'll find you if they think your work is interesting and, and honestly probably marketable and invite you to publish with them. So I had two or three, I had, had several editors contact me that first year when I was presenting my dissertation research and they said, um, we're interested in publishing this book. And I wanted to go, well, there's a story of, of how I chose the press, I ultimately chose, but but what ended up happening is someone persisted over five years in emailing me and saying and I think she emailed every season but I remember or every quarter but she was like hello Marlene I remain interested in your book when you're ready to discuss it I'm here you know and then I would get it in the spring and the summer and the fall and then um and I kept thinking absolutely I'm interested I will do this uh, as soon as I write this grant or when I got the grant, as soon as I finished this study or when I finished the study, as soon as I write this, page, you know, there's always mm-hmm. something else. Um, but then COVID happened and I, my kids were my little, my oldest was in kindergarten. So we had to, you know, stop kindergarten and, and have them home. And then my youngest was two or just turning three. And uh, it was, you know, like many parents with young children, we split our days. There was never enough time to do anything, It was kind of a dream come true for me to be around my growing children and to see them growing like every hour, every day, and also a nightmare of how am I going to actually keep my work going and how do we make this work in one house and how do we teach them in addition to to doing our work? But I remember being in the basement and hearing them laughing upstairs and thinking, if I am going to be separated from these children, I am going to be doing the work that I care about. The most and it just made sense for me to to work on this book at that moment and i remember being like this is what this is what i need to put in the world Mm -hmm. right now and so so that when you asked me how long it took you know you write the dissertation in about i think i think it was like nine months and that was i remember my advisor being like that that's ambitious but like i was you know i had a family and a clock so i made the clock and then afterwards i think the you have to you know revise it and it goes out for peer review so that process took about a year and a half it's a long answer to your question
0: yeah it's amazing uh I feel like <laughs> because I have three kids I feel like I've accomplished so much more with my kids because you have to um make sure you You schedule your time
1: very Mm -hmm. well. (laughs) Exactly. You know,
0: when I had all the time in the world before kids, I wasn't like as organized. (laughs) Like now, it's a whole different world. So I totally get it. That's amazing. (laughs) I always talk about the healing benefits of art. One part of the book I really liked reading was about all the studies showing the healing benefits of art. So I'll read a little bit. Um, a little excerpt of what you have from the book. Studies have provided evidence that art activities have therapeutic benefits. Scholars and practitioners find that engagement in artistic activity reduces anxiety, fosters emotional expression, and increases optimism, and increases psychological well-being. Several review articles in the psychology literature that examine studies of art activities listed a number of improvements in mental health. While the effects of art on the brain are just beginning to be researched, the effects of emotional expression and optimism on the other clinical outcomes have been found. So can you tell us a bit more about your own
1: research and what you found? Yeah, so I'll share that. That, that is such an interesting part of the book to me because what I noticed when I did research with the artists, the art therapists. And I should clarify that in the, so I spoke with artists that are not therapists. They are hundred percent artists, Mm -hmm. um, but they worked in hospitals. And then I worked, and then I spoke with people that were licensed uh, art therapists that were mental uh, health professionals and credentialed in their fields. And then I spoke with people that were art volunteers. So the, the question of who can do art in the medical space is, um, is broad. Like there are several, there are many kinds of artists working there. So just to clarify, like, um, when I say artist, I'm talking about all, of, all of those people. But what I noticed is many of them were so interested in the literature that proved that it worked. And they actually wanted to do more of that. They wanted more studies. They wanted to understand, could we do, um, an MRI that showed the effects of art making on the brain, like a functional MRI while people were doing it to show actually what happens in the brain. And I remember going <clears throat> to the neurology ward at the University of Washington, I don't think they would call it a ward, but to the department and talking to them, to one of the investigators there and saying, how would you study this? And he, he kind of broke down kind of the, the difficulties of just studying art making over time because time is also a natural healer and how to tease apart the effect. And he, he walked through what a, a research design would look like for me. Um, he walked through just the, the ways that you set up studies to design clinical outcomes, especially in his case for the brain. But um The research that I found showed that that's how this was being understood, right? Like, how can we measure? There was one study that looked at surgical wound healing times, another at cell-mediated immunity, and there are increasing studies looking at clinical outcomes. But what I thought was really interesting is it's mostly the artist and the art therapist who want those, and they're trying to, you know, become an evidence-based profession. They want their field to be recognized as, um, as clinically effective. But when I spoke with providers, the doctors, the oncologists, the surgeons um, about how did, like what evidence mattered to them essentially? How did they know that this worked, quote unquote? What did they need to see to believe in it? And I remember their answers were like, well, if you measure it, it'll ruin it. Like you can't, you can't expect an outcome. You can't um, ask for that. That would ruin the magic of it. And I remember sitting in this room with this, um, oncologist just shocked that he was using the word magic, right? Like he operates in a profession of rigorous evidence of multiple clinical trials, right? Like that is how he practices medicine and how he supports his patients. And here he's telling me, don't measure the art making because that will ruin its magic. And um, I
0: love that. (laughs) I loved it
1: too. Yeah. And I think, and I think what he's saying, like the more I understand kind of how primary care and and I'm not a doctor, so my understanding is you know from the outside looking in. But the more I kind of understand what's happened with quality metrics and um, and doing evidence based medicine, it does. It it has it has improvements in patient care and patient outcomes, but there's a cost as well to providers, and their ability to be creative and to be person centered in ways. I mean, we have you know precision medicine and genomic medicine, which is all about the patient, but it's about their biology. And there's a way to interact with patients that um, providers tell me they used to be able to do and they can't do anymore. And I think they're watching the field of art, arts and health become professionalized. And they're worried that if you have this expectation that X, Y, Z outcomes will happen, you don't leave room for the moment to unfold in whatever direction, like then you have a protocol you have to follow. Then mm-hmm. you have a script for how to be right with a patient and you can't, um, you can't just be and let whatever happens next happen. And I think there, I think, our, again, I'm not an arts professional, so this is my under, my guessing. I think many of them would say, we absolutely would protect that space. That's how we do, but we also want to show that when you protect that space, you have these kinds of outcomes. So I don't think it's one or the other, mm-hmm. but I think the conversations that um, art therapists and arts and artists are having about proving that art works are different than the conversations that doctors are having when they say, we want art in the hospital for our patients. It's not about proving that it works. It's about creating moments for people to be recognized, I think, as fully human in a way that medicine doesn't do.
0: Yes, oh, that's so beautiful. And I feel like being an artist myself. <clears throat> there's like a flow um, when you're creating, and you stop that flow. Maybe the you know the doctors are thinking uh, when you put in that research you know in that science but yeah i could see how the artists too and the art therapists would want to to prove hey listen this is something you know it helps um yeah and has art healed you in any way have you ever dabbled in it or like um done anything that anything artistic
1: yeah i think um so my grandmother loved art and art making, and we would, you know, do art together when I was young. But I think really, um, I got into it kind of through the, the lens of jewelry making, like I would make things to to wear on the body. And I became really interested in how we could not just, you know, design things that were beautiful or play. That. So, I, so I became interested in how you can make art that's worn on the body and how it can have... A significance for people, especially people living with grief, um, and that was kind of it. And then I stopped making that when my first baby was born, um, and also that's when I, you know, really started doing my dissertation research. But recently, throughout the pandemic, I've gotten back in it like hardcore, and I don't know if that was um, because of. Uh, just the stress, and or maybe it was partly because of writing the book where I was immersed back in that world. But it was also, I think, just the stress and the grief and the the fear of uncertainty that was happening in the world. And I got into felting, which is um, this act of kind of knitting wool together by stabbing it with a barbed needle. But it makes these like beautiful creations. And I remember thinking that act of um, almost violence, right, of kind of, stabbing this wool. And then the, um, the beauty of, of working with like an animal product, like a sheep's wool, you have to work with this, you know, really pure, refined wool. Um, and then creating something beautiful, like all of it, I just loved all of it. Um, and I still do do that. But I, mo- and then I got into watercolor. So I think for the mm. past year, I've been really exploring watercolor. And I think one of the things I love about it is what echoes in the book, but I remember what artists told me, like my, I take these watercolor tutorials and the art teacher says, um, you don't know what's going to happen, right? You have to just, like watercolor, you guide, but you don't tell it what to do. And you have to be open to the surprise of what it will do for you. And I remember being like, yes, like this is a metaphor for life. This is is what the artists in my book were telling me, right? Like one of the most beautiful quotes I know I have in there, I think is from this artist named Ian Sion. He um, worked at MD Anderson. and I think now he has his own um, business. You can uh, look him up and see what he's up to. He's, he's incredible. But he t- I remember one of the things he told me is that making art is embracing uncertainty, right? And it's an act yes. of courage. And it takes courage to face a blank page. And it takes courage to face the unknown. And one of the things he intentionally did with his um, with the patients that worked with him was create these opportunities for them to use and build their courage. Um, and, and for some of them, it was just getting through cancer treatment. For some of them, it was facing the ultimate unknown, you know, which is facing death and then whatever comes beyond. And as I kind of get into this medium, it feels like, um, like an act of courage every time for sure, but it also feels like this embracing like possible futures, like what could happen next? And what if, and what's the next thing that could happen after I do that? And after I get this new skill and try this new technique, what could happen then? And I think we're, I don't know, many, it seems like many of the people I know are in this phase of life after coming out of the pandemic, kind of watching how the world is going and asking like what other futures are possible? Like what else mm-hmm. could we create for ourselves and in our own lives? Um, and I think that part of it, the possibility that we could create something in our future that feels so healing to me, like just knowing that I can decide what happens next, or I can just put something in the world and then see what happens next. Um, and it doesn't have to be for anyone but me, right? Or it could be something I share or not, or it could be something I do with someone or not, but just the act of kind of, um, Showing up every day is is the act of, of showing up for other things also in the world. So it's all new for me. I'm not like, you know, I haven't been an artist my whole life, um, but I am so ready for this now to be a part of the next years of my life.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, always talk about how we were all born creative, but we lose that. I know. You know, as kids, you know, if you ever watch your kids, it's so natural for them to create, right? Mm-hmm. And as we get older, we either lose the self confidence, or maybe someone tells us it doesn't look good, or you just other things happen, or you have other interests. So when people tell me that I don't know how to draw a stick figure, I'm like, yeah, you do. And you could draw a great stick figure. And if you keep practicing and Show up, just like you said, just showing up. I loved what he had said that it is an act of courage, you know, to show up to the blank canvas or whatever it is, the blank piece of paper and just do it and see what happens and that's and just have fun and enjoy it. So I love that you're doing this and um, that it's helped you. And what words of wisdom do you have for all the creative spirits out there who want to write their own book and who feel maybe discouraged or, you know, maybe don't have the confidence?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I would say, I mean, if you're creative and showing up for your artistic practice, I I would say it's that same part of your brain, understanding, you know, the Broca and the Wernicke's area of the brain, that process language are different than the creative areas of the brain. Um, So it is a little bit of a different kind of discipline. But it's the same practice of showing up and putting something out there and then looking at it and working on it again and again. But I think um, for me, writing an academic book, there's kind of a a path to do that in my field, and I it might be different for people, or in my world, um, and I think it's different for people that want to write a book for the popular audience, but if I could maybe speak to people out there um, who might be artists working in hospitals about what I think the potential is for their art, I remember one of the things I was thinking as I thought about speaking with you today about What's the potential out there for people doing art? Like, what's the what's the next step? Like, what's the fullest way to realize how to take this magic of doing art, which embraces uncertainty, in a medical space, which drives for positivism and um, certainty? Right? Like, that's the practice mm-hmm. of medicine. We need to know what this is. We need to test it and diagnose it and treat you for it. And then the artist saying, "We don't know what's going to happen next, and that's okay." Right? Mm-hmm. Like providers often can't say that to patients, but -hmm. what do you do when these two things are together, right? In a medical Mm -hmm. space. And I think one of the things that I'm most interested in end of life care is how do we hear what matters most to people? And and palliative care doctors call call these kinds of conversation goals of care conversation, where we ask, what are your goals? um, And what would you like us to do for you? Which can often be very technical, right? Like, do you want, a feeding tube? Do you want CPR? Do you want to be on a ventilator? But I think artists give people the opportunity to imagine a future that's more like, how do you want to live your values through the end Mm -hmm. of life? How do you want to be remembered afterwards? And once you have those conversations first, then you might say, okay, well, then what kind of medical care could we offer you to support that living, like living those values and living, um, Living in a way that is a death that you want that's in line with the life that you've lived mm. and how you want to be remembered. And not saying that, you know, death is what anyone wants. Of course, you know, we all want the people we love to, to to live as long as they can here with us. But when you face that, when you know it's coming and you face it together with this willingness to kind of embrace the good care that's still possible, that we can still offer each other that artists can like elicit and, and um, create pauses in this medical pathway of like procedure after procedure. And in those pauses, like reimagine something different about how we can be together right now. That I kind of think is the future of what arts and medicine, um, one of the things they could do. And I think there are people moving in this space. I'm not like up on all the latest literature on that, but that's one of the things I would leave people as they're thinking about like, what could I do with my art that's not just maybe about writing a book, although I fully support that, of course, but also like, how do, I, how do I do this practice with people in a way that brings forth what matters most to them? Like, how do we create something and then look at it together and say, tell me about that and what does that mean to you and what were you thinking mm-hmm. and what were you afraid of and what were you hoping for? And then maybe bring that into life, right? Like, what are you afraid of and what are you hoping for and how can we meet you in those places? Um, yeah, I, I just think about that and what that could look like and the new yeah. features we're all imagining.
0: I love what you said creating a pause, the artist creating that pause and that space in that medical community and that um, medical space. So I think that's so important. Uh, where can people buy your book? I don't know if it's, I don't think it's out yet. It, I don't know. I remember you said that it's still in the works and where can they find you?
1: Thanks for asking. So it actually came out um, just two or three weeks ago. It's brand new in the world. It's on Mm. Amazon. And I'll just say that as an academic book, it's um, pricey. It's kind of priced for academic libraries. But if you go to the website of the publisher, um, which is Lexington University Press, and you use the code... uh, L F and F 30, there's a 30% discount and, um, you can get the Kindle or the hardback version there.
0: That's awesome. And we'll put it in the show notes. We'll put the link and everything so people can access it easily. Um, thank you so much for being on my podcast and putting aside your time to be here with me and to share this because I always talk about how healing art can be and it, how healing it just is. It just is. And uh, how important it is. So it it's wonderful to have you here to talk about that and the research you have done.
1: Oh, I loved being here. Thank you so much. And I um, have followed your art once Brooke connected us. And I mm-hmm. would love one day to be in LA and experience the art that you do. I think it's absolutely lovely. Oh,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. That would be a pleasure. Um, thank you again for being for being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Creative Spirits Podcast. If you want to see more of my work, you can go to CherylBenji.com or on Instagram at CherylBenji underscore art. You can also join my Creative Spirits group on Facebook or the Saturday Night Live Art Shows group on Facebook as well. And please follow, leave a comment. It would mean a lot to me. And don't forget to share this with anyone that you think it might inspire. This is all about the ripple effect of sending goodness and beauty and healing through the power of art thank you so much until next time